HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from music. Wow. What was that music? It was awesome. Oh, that was the next song on the playlist. Let's hear it. 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 Oh, you know what that is. What? Oh, cheese. Oh, cheese. 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 Oh, yeah. All cheese all day here on the Heritage Radio <laughs> Network with the cheese song. Hey, speaking of... Uh, you know, I met the guy who co-wrote uh, George Clinton's new autobiography. Wouldn't that be sweet if we? Like, what, what, like, what would it take to get George Clinton to show up at the Heritage Radio Network? Oh man, I, I don't know if I should say. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I would pretty much do anything to get George Clinton here in the studio. We'll work on it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, can you think of anything? I mean, like that would be like the most amazing coup ever, right, Stas? Yeah, but he would hate it because I would just sit there and like freak out the whole time, and be like, hey, "I love you, I love yeah. you." You know what I mean? Yeah. It'd be embarrassing. It's kind of bad when I meet people like that. Actually, yeah. I should probably not meet him. No. Uh, joined as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. We got Jack over there in the engineering booth, and uh, we were missed last week because I was at the Star Chiefs, so we didn't get a chance to send a special thanking shout out to uh, Johnny and all the guys at the Underground Food Collective at uh, University of Madison. We haven't been on the air since that, right? Yeah, seems like a billion years ago, doesn't it? Yeah. Seems like a long, long time. Okay. Uh, those guys are great. We had a fantastic time in Madison. You? Yeah, do you like great. it? Mm-hmm. They got those two lakes. What are they called? Don't remember. They're like named after the Judd sisters, right? Like Winona and something like this? No, it's uh, Mendota and Menona, I think, are the two lakes. Really pretty up there. Yeah. Nice place. People are nice. Okay. <clears throat> Milwaukee, nice too. Oh, my Milwaukee. Stas, Stas and I and Peter from the Museum of Food and Drink, we were all up there doing a, you know, a Museum of Food and Drink thing. 
So Stasi's like, I'm not driving. We drove from Chicago. Why? We didn't fly to Milwaukee. Only God knows. We drove from Chicago to University of Madison because, you know, I've missed demos before where I have like 8 billion connector flights. And like the one that we could take, like there was like, I don't know, some, some ping pong of flights that we needed to take, you know, via Omaha or some crap to make it to Madison. And I was like, I'm going to miss a demo. So no. So we drove, we flew to Chicago and then we drove up. Stasi's like, I'm not driving through Milwaukee without having some bratwurst. I'm not doing it. Isn't that pretty much what you said? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're pretty much just like that. Yeah. So we found this crazy place. What was it called? The Old German Beer Hall or something like that. It's modeled on the uh, Hofbräuhaus House in, in, uh, in Munich. And um, holy crap, what a great place, right? Yeah. Usinger Sausage or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And they have this game that we played that, Stas, you like this game I as much. It. It's called... Hammer the nail or something like this? Yeah, I guess so. It's like hit the nail? It's called like something like hit the nail. Anyways, for 50 cents, first of all, you go in there and you, you and uh, you know, the, the waitress who's very nice didn't understand why I didn't understand this concept. But if you were to buy a bratwurst with one side, right, that's six bucks, six dollars, right? Yeah. If you order a beer for five dollars, the bratwurst comes free. With a side. Right, with a side. And so I said to the lady, I was like, is it the same bratwurst inside or like some sort of factory seconds or some sort of miniature bratwurst that comes with the, with the, with the beer or soda? They like, but only root beer, not seltzer. How nuts is that? So the lady ended up giving me a root because I was driving, giving me a root beer that I gave to you or Peter and then also a seltzer for free. But she's like, no, it's the same exact. It's a free lunch. It's a, it's, but it's cheaper than free. It's negative money. Yeah. It's negative money. It made no damn sense to me, but she she thought that I was crazy for not understanding it. But anyways, back to this hit the nail thing. So they have a giant stump. What do you think, Stas? Like three feet across, mm-hmm. three and a half feet maybe mm-hmm. across. Giant stump at like you know, uh, kind of like chest height, a little bit lower, like you know, work surface height, mm-hmm. like counter counter height stump, mm-hmm. big stump, and you buy for fifty cents a cut nail, an old fashioned like you know triangular shaped cut nail, and then they have a steel hammer. Like, like, you know, Thor style hammer chained to this freaking stump. And then you have to go around each taking a turn, whacking at the nail. And whoever sinks it last, they, uh, you know, they buy the next round. Well, or so, you know, so we told Peter, I don't know. He didn't, he wasn't believing the story. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that he lost twice, (laughs) Peter to us. I'm not saying that. But he did. But the interesting thing about it is, is that like, in, can you imagine this in New York? Like, how many times did we hit the nail wrong and it went flying yeah. across the room? Yeah, like a bunch of eyeless people. But apparently, like you know, those folks with their giant moss beers—they have Stein clubs where you can buy the Stein and have it stay, sit in the club there. Sweet. Anyway, those guys can apparently hit that sucker in one whack. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Milwaukee. Hey, and- before we jump in, um, just wanted to maybe hear your thoughts on. Um- you know, the guy from Car Talk passed away this week. Which I didn't know that. Yeah. Like yeah. when? Um, yesterday. Oh, yeah, because I just heard him on Sunday or whatever. Or was Saturday, whatever, whenever it's on the NPR. Yeah. Were you a fan? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, I really respect what they did. I wasn't like a longtime listener, but, you know, my stepfather was who can't like, who can't, you know, barely, you know, work a mechanical pencil. He used to like listening to it. I mean, like, uh, I definitely enjoyed Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. Right, which is like their their, I guess fictional, but maybe now real law firm. Dewey Cheatham and Howe, because you know they had a. You've listened to Car Talk before, right, Seth? No, you never listened to it once. Mm-mm. Oh my god, they were on for like twenty five years or something like that, weren't they? Yeah. Wow, that's too bad. It's funny because sometimes I call cooking issues like the Car Talk for food. I wish. 
I wish. Now we need to get like snappier, like you know, things at the end, and I don't know. We you know. We have to have our listeners only ask one question on the phone. Well, what is? But the card talk guys, they talk to they talk to like one person for like eight years, and they just but the thing is, is like the thing about them is that they can do really well, or you know, did really well, is like completely make fun of the listener. Right, we don't do that. We don't make fun of our listeners the way they did. But it's good nature what they were doing. But they're basically called everyone incompetent who called in, right? I mean, pretty much that's what they did. You big fan, Jack? Um, yeah, I was a fan. I mean, absolutely. I mean, we do make fun of maybe like Roberta's staff members, all right? Yeah. You mean you're that's talking, okay. talking about Santa's little hipster? <laughs> and Indy Jesus. And, and Indy Jesus. <laughs> Speaking of which, you know, we have a question in today, Jack, on uh, maybe we can get it during the break on Roberta's pizza dough. Ooh. And uh, we need to find whoever, like, the current, like, not when I mean current, like, all time, but, like, the actual this second, like, resident expert on the pizza dough. Oh, yeah, because, we'll, get, we'll get somebody on the line. Yeah, because I want, like, I want to answer this question properly. I think I have the answer, but, you know, it's, since I'm in Roberta's freaking pizzeria and the guy calls to ask me about, uh, you know, Roberta's pizza dough, it would be yeah. dumb for me to, you know, speculate, right? Yeah. All right, so I do have a caller on the line that's probably not going to ask about Roberta's Pizza. You never know. You never, never know. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. How you doing? Doing well. Hey, um, I have a question about making uh, homemade soda and actually bottling it in glass bottles with one of those wing-style cappers. Sure. Um, and I, I want it to be shelf-stable at room temp, mm. preferably with no benzoate or any additives or anything. Not that I'm against using that. I just It's kind of my shtick. I want it to just be water flavorings and CO2. Yeah. Um, so how do you recommend going about doing that? Is it even practical without some crazy equipment? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you're pretty much hosed. Um, how many do you need to make? Uh, I would like to make a bunch, like for the holidays. So, but like how like much is a bunch? Good, good, good size run, like probably upwards of 100 bottles. Yeah, and how much – here's the thing, right? Um, you need to kill yeast on the inside of that thing, right? And uh, right. it's been a long time since I've researched it, but you know your two main problems. There are some, I think. There's nothing dangerous that will grow in it, but uh, you know there are um, certain um, there are certain yeast that will grow in it and will ferment the sugar out, or that will. There, I think there's also I forget. It's been a long time since I've researched it because I've I've had to research shelf stability of sodas before. Um, you know, there's. Uh, I think there's some bacteria that not, – nothing dangerous, but stuff that's going to ruin the flavor of the soda and also make it not clear anymore, uh, assuming that it's clear. So like all of these things are going to cause you uh, problems, right? Um, so there's a couple ways around this. I don't remember what the percentage is, but you could probably hit it – I mean – well, of course, they're not sodas anymore. I mean you could hit it with alcohol to stabilize it, but you need a relatively large amount of alcohol like so it's nowhere near soda anymore. You know what I mean? To try and stabilize it. Or you could attempt to pasteurize it. Now, I don't know what the increase – so for instance, if you were to heat to pasteurize on the inside of a bottle, uh, you're going to get extremely high internal pressures on the inside of that bottle, like very high pressures on the inside of that bottle. So, okay. So, I mean, so one of the limitations when you're going to pasteurize a soda – is you'll notice that a lot of the – you'll notice if you go to like a – let's say you go to a supermarket like Whole Foods that only sells sodas that don't contain uh, preservatives, right? Okay. Right. So you go to one of these places and you buy a, a soda there. You'll probably notice that most of those natural sodas are relatively um, undercarbonated compared to let's say Coke or 7-Up, 
right? Sure. And um, one of the reasons is is because it's more difficult for them to um, – pasteurize the higher the level of co2 that's in the bottle the more difficult the pasteurization becomes so you know you could you could try i mean i don't know what temperatures you need to reach but you could put the suckers inside of a pressure cooker and like see if they blow you know what i mean um are you doing bottle conditioned or not bottle conditioned what's that are you bottle conditioning it or are you force carbonating it uh it would it would be coming out of like a uh, liquid bread setup, you know, two liter. I'd just be sure. pouring it through a funnel and do a cold bottle. All right, so you don't need the yeast to be alive or anything like that. Okay, so yeah, I mean, there are some other natural. Uh, it's been again, it's been like over a year since I've had to research. So I don't remember, but there are other like uh, natural slash preservatives that kind of dissipate inside the bottle o- over time. Uh, you know what I was looking at actually recently. Uh, but I haven't. Is it? But it affects the flavor of it. Is uh, <clears throat> uh, rowan berries, which are mountain ash, uh, are used in liqueurs, and they're astringent and red. Uh, they contain naturally sorbic acid, and sorbic acid is a preservator, a preservative with antimicrobial, and I believe anti-yeast uh, activity. That you could just say that you made rowan berry flavor, and then if you you know, and then I. I don't know whether there's enough levels in a standard decoction of this stuff to actually um, prevent yeast growth. But, I mean, it's at least – it's from a fruit, but it contains the actual stuff that's used as a, a preservative just in natural form so that you can just say I use rowan berry. I don't know if that's helpful. Right, yeah. I mean, well, I guess what I'm trying to figure out is that if I sterilize all the equipment and then uh, purge the bottles of CO2, fill them really quickly, and then cap them immediately, presumably there's really no oxygen in the bottle. I mean, is is that correct? Um, is that a good way to handle it, or just? Are you going to give people the liquid bread carbonator cap? No. Yeah, because one way to do it is to um, you basically you would fill the bottles hot. So that the yeast would be dead, you'd heat the you'd heat the um, yeah I see you'd heat the the product right, pasteurize it beforehand, and then carbonate it once it's been pasteurized, so that you don't have to worry about pressure problems. And you could do that in a soda bottle. Now, presumably, everything that's inside of the bottle is pasteurized, but you know, no matter how hard you work, there'll probably be some yeast colony. Will it last a lot longer? Yeah. Probably. In other words, it'll probably make it sta- – the answer is that it's probably going to be a lot more stable if you do it that way. If you if you put the stuff into the plastic bottles that you're going to carbonate with with liquid bread, you like totally you know, you know, sterilize the you – know, uh, sanitize the bejesus out of the glass bottle, store them upside down uh, and then uh, you know, with a cap over them or, or upright set up with a cap over them, pasteurize the stuff in the plastic bottle, chill it, then carbonate it without opening it to the atmosphere and decant it in. I mean that's probably your best bet, but it's not a guarantee. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Does, does benzoate just remove that hassle? Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. But a lot, right. of, a lot of people Thanks. don't like it, but you're only using it in, in like a small amount. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Good luck with it. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Uh, and speaking of uh, carbonated stuff, we got a couple of carbonated questions. Might as well take them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, did we deal with the pear cider last time, Jim? Can't remember. It's been so long. So. Uh, hey, oh, Dave. Yeah. I do have Anthony Falco, the head pizza guy from Roberta's, on the line. If you want to do that, sweet. Let's do that. Yeah. All right. You there, Falco? 
Hey, yeah, how's it going? Hey, thanks for thanks for talking to us. I'm just got to scroll down in my questions and find the Roberta's related question. Kevin is using your uh, recipe from the book here, and here's here's what uh, Kevin says. Uh, I have a question on sourdough starter and pizza. I currently use Roberta's sourdough starter pizza dough recipe from the book, presumably, with a kettle pizza wood charcoal burning pizza oven. For those of you who don't know, it's like a it's like a ring that converts like a Weber style grill into like a uh, into a pizza oven that you can load in and out yeah. of without lifting the top. Um, and I don't get the same oven spring <clears throat> with that as the crust as as I do with a regular yeast dough recipe. So he's saying that what he's getting is a fairly flat, dense crust. And he says that he's feeding his sourdough starter only weekly with 45 grams of AP and 35 grams of water. And both recipes <laughs> are two-day cold ferments, and he brings them up before baking them. Blah blah blah. My my feeling is is it is that it's too acid, right? It's like he's 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 allowing his starter to get too acid, so it's going slack because. Uh, of too much acid because remember uh, is that you think that's yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, you this if you're feeding your uh, flour or sourdough starter weekly, it's not it's not um, going to do anything. Um, he's going to need to. I mean, it's fine to feed your sourdough weekly uh, to keep it alive. That's like uh, life support. If you want it to be awake, to like actually. You know, do the heavy lifting of the of the lifting of your of your bread, which it sounds like it's not doing. Is he's going to need to feed it um, a couple days, twice a day, a couple days before um, he he makes the pizza. And, and the way he'll know it's ready to go is it will be like bubbly and frothy and light. You know, if it looks like just soupy wet flour. Then you know it's it's somewhere dormant inside that it, mixture is is the the ye- the combination of the yeast and the bacteria that he needs to to leaven his dough, but unless it's actually you know there's a the percentage of those yeast and bacteria that are awake and ready to fucking rock and roll are excuse me sorry live um, is is going to be really low. And so he needs to bring that percentage up by feeding them, you know, multiple waking them up. Because if he's, I'm assuming he, if he's feeding it weekly, he's keeping it in his refrigerator. That's what I. He doesn't say, but I assume. And and like I'm super glad I'm talking to you because I didn't even think that the sucker wasn't rising at all. Like it was like not active enough. I thought it was probably inactive because they were dying, and his dough was too acidic, so the gluten was was not, uh, you know was not as uh, extensible. It was losing some power out of that. You know how like when sourdough goes too sour, it like, you know, it, it, it can flatten out. And the, but then the crust would also be too, would it be too white, right? It wouldn't look right if he was actually going yeah. too acidic on it. Yeah. I mean, there would just, a lot of things would be off. Um, but to me, if it's, when he says dense and, and lack of spring, I mean, I, you know, I'm assuming that he's cutting it open and there's no crumb. You know, when he right. says it's dense, that it's like, and the crumb would be the, those little holes in the indication that, like, fermentation is happening. Yeah. Um, I think it's exactly uh, what, what are your thoughts for someone like this who's not going to be not, you know, pro-baking, doing it, feeding it once a week and keeping a relatively small amount? What are your thoughts on keeping it at a higher hydration level so that it kind of wakes up faster and then, like, doing like well, a... The, yeah, his, 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 he's retarding his yeast. If he's putting it in the refrigerator, he's retarding it. So... You know, if you you're following our dough instruction, um, we are are mixing and resting and mixing 
and then we're retarding the dough for for a long uh, fermentation overnight. Um, but if it's already retarded, then the whole thing is just going to be too retarded to work. <laughs> yeah. It's, I know, uh, I know it's all bread baking terminology, but it just sounds funny when you say it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, he, you know, he's got, he's got to get it awake. So he's got to bring it out to room temperature. And it's really a visual thing, you know, and, 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 you, and you can smell it too. So it's a visual and olfactory uh, indications that are going to be there before you put your sourdough in. It should be like literally like, you know, foaming like bubbling up and like, you know, you can see all the little holes in the top. When you shake it, it's like light and, and, and like uh, the consistency of foam. It's actually a foam that is, is what it is because it's, it's a, you know, a liquid with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, air gas in it. So it is a foam. And so, you know, if it's, if it's dense and, and like a slurry of just flour and water. It's just not the yeast, and you know they're in there. It's just not awake. And in my experience as a sourdough starter, if I wanted to use it after having it uh, in the refrigerator for a week, I would give myself two days. I would bring it out like you know three days before I was going to start in the morning, and you know I would feed it, and then and at night and leave it in a warm place, like you know preferably seventy-five degrees, seventy-five to eighty degrees. And then, uh, and then that night I would feed it again, and then the next day I would feed it again, and then I, that that last feeding that night before I would expect to see some some activity and a lot of like boozy smell coming out of it by the end of the night. Right. No way to cheat it in one day, though, huh? Back to life out of the fridge. No, I, I you know, I, like so. You know, you're like when I use commercial yeast, I'm crossing my fingers. You know, every time it's like you don't. It's, you're dealing with these living creatures, you know, and you're trying to convince them to do something for you on a you know microbiological scale. So, you know, it's a sourdough is is you know it's very tricky, and, and uh, you know I tell people this in uh, in my pizza class. I'm like, just you got to get. You got to really become familiar with this process with the just commercial yeast before you start playing with sourdoughs. And then once you start playing with sourdoughs, I mean, everyone's is going to be different. So you really got to get to know yours. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that would be, that would be my guess. I mean, if he has, uh, you know, if any of this is wrong, if I've just speculated way too much, then he should email me at anthony at robertaspizza.com. And I would love to continue to get them going on the right path. Well, we really appreciate it. And also, uh, the Millennium Falco pizza made by you or named for you or both? Uh, it was it was an uh, invention of mine uh, from the early days in the pizza kitchen, um, and it's an homage to my uh, Sicilian uh, great-grandmother who used to make pizza from scratch, and she used to make it similar to that, you know, but not in a round you know, kind of neo-Neapolitan kind of way, but she used to do it in a pan, like a, like a thicker crust. But it was like that. She put the breadcrumbs and the onion sauce and, you know, uh, see, that's, that's the way she would make uh, pizza. So it was kind of, a, kind of an homage to that. Nice. Listen, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, straightening this out for Kevin. Hopefully he can get his uh, stuff in order. Maybe he can come up with a schedule so that if he's going to do it every week, he could bring it out a couple days before, feed it up, use it, put it in the fridge, you know? It's not that much harder. 
No, absolutely not. I mean, he just needs to bring it out. I, I, that's, what, that's just based on the information I have is bring it out a little early and just get it get it woken up. You know, it's a little retarded. Get it a little, you know, a little more, a little more ready to rock. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Let's go to a break. We'll come back with more commer- uh, more commercials, more cooking more issues. Commercials. I wish. <laughs> All right. Well, thank thanks, you. Bro. Hey, and also, if uh, you know, if, if listeners want to listen every Tuesday at 7 p.m., Roberta's Radio. They have their own show, Roberta's Radio. You can hear a lot more from Falco. And uh, with that being said, we'll be right back. has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast regional forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Hey, my name is Sam KB. I just moved to New York, and you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You recognize that voice? No, who is that? From Underground Meats. Oh, yes, Johnny? Sam. Sam. I I wasn't listening. You did say my name is Sam. I wasn't listening. I was looking at the little things. (laughs) Jeez. Sorry, Sam. I wasn't listening. (laughs) Now I know what it's like to be stars. Boom! Wow. Boom. Boom. Oh, my God. Except you weren't shopping for shoes. I wasn't oh shopping for shoes. God. I was looking I at the next question. I right. go to Payless. So, that does not require online shopping. So John Stewart from Madison met us when we were out there and said that he thought that it was at times shocking how mean I am to Anastasia. Yeah. But yeah. but let me just say in my defense, you got to know her. That's... <laughs> I don't know if that's a defense. I'm just saying that, like, you know, the people are only only hearing what they hear on the radio. Like, you know, like, she, you know, when it's like, you know, they can't see that she might be sitting there with like a needle, like poking me the entire time. You know what I mean? What not happening. Not a not a literal needle. No, you people. Everyone. Everyone's out. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> now Stas is giving me the, the head wag back and forth. Okay. Kevin Scott writes in about freeze dryers. Hey, have you guys played around with the Harvest Right freeze dryer or heard from anyone who has? It looks like a reasonable alternative to lab freeze dryer, but it's difficult to tell how well the thing is built and how consistent it will be over time. Uh, thanks, Kevin Scott. Now, uh, Kevin, so I someone asked me once uh, before on the uh, uh, on Twitter, I think actually, and I was a big Twitter like you know back and forth about it. Uh, I, you know, I have not used it. <clears throat> I did uh, look at their website. This was what was that? Stuff like a year ago or something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was like a year ago. I looked at their website, and the layout of the machine is fundamentally fairly similar to the old uh, Virtus uh, freeze dryers with the with the door that opens up. 
Um, you know, and I, the, the things that I was researching at the time were, you know, the, in any freeze dryer, like some of the important um, things you have to look for are the uh, how many liters uh, the cold trap is, right? Because in order to freeze dry, you need to be able to remove the water from the product. And if you if you can't thaw out your cold trap in the middle of your freeze drying run, it's just you can't do it. So, you know, you're limited the quantity of product that you uh, can freeze dry is not just limited by the size of the chamber that you're freeze drying in. It's also limited by the size of your cold trap. Uh, so that's one thing to look at. And another thing in terms of quality is the uh, quality of the product is the temperature of the cold trap. And you know, from everything I've read, colder is better. Now, the ideas and food guys, Alex and Aki, uh, gave us a, a food uh, um, a freeze dryer. You know, uh, before they moved, uh, but we haven't had time to play with it yet because there's a problem with the. Um, there's a problem with the vacuum gauge, so I need to, to get get that working. So I don't have a lot of practical experience with it, but from what I can look from a purely specification level, the uh, the uh, Harvest Right seems like uh, a good deal. And I, you know, because it's only I think like maybe three or four grand or something compared to like twenty for a regular one. So if anyone has any experience with it, I'd appreciate a tweet in or a call in, uh, you know, to let uh, let them know what uh, what's going on. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, Jim wrote in a while ago. This is for one of the older shows that we're trying to catch up to. Uh, tell us if we've done this already. Had a bumper crop of pears this year, so I made a batch of pear cider. Wanted some sparkle in the bottle, so I added a little sugar to each, capped it, and left it alone. One month later, I opened the first bottle, and it sprayed everywhere. Spent an hour cleaning the kitchen. That's a lot of spray. I don't want pear. I mean, a pear thing. I mean, think, hey, listen, you weren't making cherry cherry wine. But that would have sucked, right? Or maybe you mm-hmm. did add cherries to the pear and it's bright. I don't know. Well, probably not, right? Probably not. Okay. Uh, clearly, I added too much sugar and now they're all too carbonated. Any way to get the rest of these bottles open without an explosion or are all 20 bottles lost? There is clearly yeast sediment at the bottom of each bottle uh, that creates many nucleation sites for uh, carbonation to explode. So I wonder if I should try disgorging it first, freeze the neck in cold salt water, etc. Any advice greatly appreciated. And for what it's worth, what little was left did taste good. Peaceful thoughts, Jim in Durham, North Carolina. Now, uh, that's a good question. I've never done uh, disgorgement before, but <clears throat> I mean it's been it, – people do it for hundreds and hundreds of years. So presumably you can, uh, you can do it. Um, you know, with the salt and ice bottles upside down, you have to wrap it. You're going to have to rack the settlement. You're going to have to keep the bottles pointed, uh, you know, at the angle and you can look at pictures of where they do it in champagne for reference and then just keep rotating them, uh, you know, over the course of, I don't know how, however long it takes to get the sediment down in the bottom of the bottle and then do your freeze off and cap and blast it out, um, and assuming that you have a long enough neck in it to hold all the sediment, you should sediment. You should be able to do it. Um, you know, another way is you. The problem is you want to keep you know kind of oxygen away from. It. Another way to do it is to literally open these things inside of uh, inside of a giant plastic bag inside of a bucket, uh, and then um, <clears throat> you know cap it so that you're not so that you know the CO two is going to come off. It's going to form a CO two layer, uh, and then let it settle over the course of a couple of days in a plastic bucket or a carboy. Right, uh, and then um, rack the stuff off the top, and then force carbonate it instead of bottle instead of like uh, instead of conditioning it, bottle conditioning it, force carbonate it back to the level it was. And if you're lucky, you know you're not going to have uh, too much oxidation over that uh, period. But that 
should also work if you don't want to go through the disgorgement. And that's probably what I would do because I would be so angry and I would want to do it right away that the thought of sitting there and rotating them day after day would like drive me nuts. So I would probably just stick them inside of a plastic bag and go spray. Make sure your plastic bag doesn't smell bad. A lot of plastic bags have weird kind of – you ever smell inside of a plastic bag? Yeah. Yeah. I mean Stas and I do it because we're like – who are you to tell me not to put my face inside of a plastic bag, right? Really hard days, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. You know, her oven, very small. So she... I don't even have an oven. Oh, come on. You don't I have an oven like anymore? Wave, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. How, do I, how am I just figuring this out right now? Your most recent apartment has a door person but not a – Microwave convection. Microwave convection. How's that? Not good. I put a pumpkin in and the ceramic cracked. So. What do you mean? What, what ceramic? The whatever the the microwave has as a base. Oh, the plate. Oh, the plate. The plate. Yeah. That's so weak. I know. Is it yours or is it the landlord's? It's the owner's. <laughs> I need to get a new one. I need to ask her for a new one. Look, I, are you even allowed to rent a space in New York that doesn't have like cooking appliances in it? Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, yeah, you are. I've seen like it's the hot plate in some apartments. You know. You mean like a dorm? No. No. Is there a space for an oven that's now filled with some other stuff? Dishwasher, which is crazy. Why do you need to wash dishes <laughs> if you don't ever cook? Yeah. I mean, I cook a lot. Just I found like a, a way to get around the convection. What's that? No, like smaller smaller trays and stuff. Huh. Put in. Yeah. Huh. Huh. So this person was like a raw foodist? No, most apartments in the building have this thing. But yet they pay for a doorman. Yeah. That's very odd. <laughs> All right, uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna just ignore it because my brain is uh, fried. So a, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a couple of people uh, give advice on why they. Cause we had this issue where this uh, you know I forget who it was, but they were rendering fat using kind of the modernist cuisine uh, technique of putting the uh, fat in in a jar and then uh, rendering it in the pressure cooker with a little baking uh, soda. Right, remember that? Mm-hmm. And then I had a speculation, and Chris Young said, "Yeah, he didn't know why." Um, but then I had a couple other people write in, but I don't think we've ever figured it out yet. Eric, Eric, uh, I don't get it, you know, get his last name. A lot of interesting, uh, ideas and some links to some articles about, um, he was specifically focusing on the, uh, how the, uh, how a change in temperature can change the, um, the solubility of gases over time. Uh, but, uh, you know, and then uh, Dave Kleiman wrote in and says when he when he does confit in a jar that it bubbles for hours even after you take it out. So one of the you know what the, the thing we're going to have to figure out if if we can't even figure out is is the stuff actually cold when it's still bubbling or not because that means something you know other than that and and the assumption is is that it's sealed inside of the jar and is bubbling inside of a sealed jar. Those are the two assumptions. So I don't think we've gotten to the bottom of it yet. Uh, but you know, if I ever have enough time on the radio, I could read Eric's entire response, but I can't because because you know, Stas gives me the, the 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 finger wag. Do you know that you Stas? Like you should just market your finger wag. You know. Anyway, um, Andrea Parodi writes in regarding uh, sous vide cooking and selecton derma. Uh, I just got my very first immersion circulator and Anova in the mail, and I'm excited, but I don't have a vacuum machine. That's fine. You don't need a vacuum machine to uh, do most of the stuff. 90% of the stuff you do, I like to say, it's my favorite phrase. 90% of the stuff you, uh, you can do with a circulator, you don't need a vacuum machine for. Uh, can you please recommend some of your favorite must-cook as soon as you get a circulator food? Foods, uh, thank you very much for the work and knowledge you share on the radio. I wish learning stuff could always be as fun as listening to cooking issues. Well, that's very nice. Very nice. Stas, Stas is giving me I doubt that face. 
I wish you guys. Like, we need like you know what? Uh, can you guys capture some of these faces and no. then we can just like flash them onto the onto no. the internet? So I'd be they... more interested to see like an artist interpretation. You know, someone that just listens to the show. Oh yeah, <laughs> they, they can don't draw even know some what faces. Like. I know that's why it would be fun. Mm. Yeah, who knows what they'd make you look like? Yeah. Oh my god. Anyways, uh, let me eggs right. So specifically, like you know, banging out like a hundred sixty-two degree eggs for like a party or a sixty-three degree egg Celsius, of course, is like the miracle creamy egg that uh, you can't otherwise do. And then steaks for parties, I think, is pretty you know a pretty good one uh, that it, you know I would do like a thick rib steak at at like fifty-five Celsius. Uh, cool it down to 50 and then, well, I would hit it with a sears all. But, uh, you know, you can finish it however you want on a super hot um, thing. What size? Do you have a Cirque? What are your favorite things to do in the Cirque? Dip? I, mean, like, I don't really home? use it. Why? What's wrong know. with you? What the hell's wrong with you? Brain damage. <laughs> it's the new one and I just don't like it, you know? You you wish you had gotten one of the yeah. old ones? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we'll work on that. Um, so... Yeah, those, I mean, those are like right up there. Then like reheating like or keeping mashed potatoes warm is a fantastic uh, application of it. It all depends on what you like to cook. I mean, the first thing, you know, the, most people, the first thing out of the box that they do with it is proteins or eggs, I would say, right? Mm-hmm. Some, something, something like that. Uh, and uh, writes, P.S. just came back from Turkey, managed to get my hands on a couple hundred grams of Celep, the one to make Donderma, not the... Uh, Less than ten percent celeb hot drink mix. I don't know. Yeah, that that hot drink mix. It says it's celeb. No relation. Like maybe it has some in it, but it just tastes like some sort of a grainy beverage. Yeah. Does that sound gross? Grainy beverage. Mm-hmm. Grainy beverage. For those of you that don't know what we're talking about, celeb is the orchid. Uh, the orchid. Uh, bulb powder that is used to make the stretchy Turkish ice cream. Uh, and then he wants to know, would we like to play with it? Sure, I love playing with it. Uh, you know, the person who um, did the most work on celeb. So I first heard of uh, Celeb from Harold McGee when he was uh, doing uh, work with us at the French Culinary Institute on alternate uh, ice cream textures. So Celeb was one and the French Pins and Needles ice cream was another one. Uh, and uh, so he first talked about it and then Kent Kirschenbaum at the Experimental Cuisine Collective at NYU did a lot of work on it uh, back in the day. Um, so he's actually characterized a lot of the polymers that are in it. He's a polymer chemist. So you might want to look up – he might have published uh, something on it. I'm not sure. But you know he's always happy to talk celeb, so you can talk to him. But I love it because I haven't had it in a while. I actually just like I like using it, right? So that he so they uh, substitute now konjac, uh, um, which is a, I think it's konjac they use, which is you know another glucomannan. Uh, but anyways, uh, yeah, I mean I always love to love to play with some. Anyway, um, Stas is giving me the the yep. the, the Stas. People don't wear watches anymore. Why is that still a valid thing to do? Tap you your know wrist. what it means. I know, but like, what if you did that to a kid? Would they have any idea what that no, means? No, I don't think so. Right? They wouldn't know. That's weird, but true. Yeah. Uh, Jay Travis writes in, Hey, guys. Sorry, this is a long one. I've tried my hand on doing a bird porchetta uh, on on chicken with great results. And this year I am attempting to do a show-stopping turkey version for Thanksgiving inspired by Kenji Lopez's – my version goes like this. Disassemble the – and I haven't seen Kenji's post on this, but I have a lot of experience rolling birds. um, A lot of experience rolling birds. Uh, Disassemble bird, brine breast meat. Uh, grind dark meat into a loose sausage, roll the breasts around the ground sausage and fashion into a roll with cling wrap, then into the freezer. Take it out, wrap it up in the skin. Uh, what? Tie off and seal into the bath at, dark, uh, at the dark meat temp. 
take out when done, refrigerate, because he's not using TG, right? Not using transglutaminase. I always use TG in this. I would use TG, TG better. Uh, take out when done, refrigerate before opening, reserve pouch juices, and fry up to crisp the skin. It's amazing, but my question to these. When I get to my aunt's house for Thanksgiving, I cannot deep fry this thing in her bustling kitchen. Uh, how much am I going to sacrifice this great skin if I tent it and then gently reheat it uh, with, uh, you know, on, with roasting it at her house? Would it benefit for me to drop the alkalinity – uh, in the cooking bag a little, maybe serve it chilled with aioli and greens instead. Help Jay Travis. Well, first of all, you can't serve a Thanksgiving turkey uh, cold. Sorry, you can't. You know what I mean? You're already pushing your luck by not serving it in whole bird format. Right, Stas? Yep. Right. Now, I have done uh, tubed uh, Thanksgiving rolls with stuffing in them, and they're good. And by the way, this is a good way to get uh, actual stuffing on the inside of the bird if you should like that, which I do. It tastes delicious even if it's microbiologically unsafe because you can roll hot stuffing in and then do a cook right Not with this protocol. You, there, there's safe ways to do it, I've, you know, and I've done it. I don't have time to get, get into it now. But I think your main problem here if you're going to do a roast off is that you're going to overcook the breast meat. This is why there's the fundamental inversion in this technique that you see also in turduckins and any situation like this. Dark meat should go on the outside. So instead of sausaging it, right, I would uh, I would pound out the dark meat into a thin layer and then roll the uh, breast meat on the inside of it. That way, even if you're brining it, right, you don't, if, if you're going to do a roast off step, which by the way, by the way, other than frying, roasting is going to give you, yeah, roasting is going to give you good, uh, good skin. So, but you're going to need to roast it for a lot longer and you're going to overcook the breast meat. I mean, pretty much that's it. Right. Another thing you can do is you well, you could wrap a layer of pork sausage around the outside and then the skin around it. But I would use TG. But I would swap it up and I would have the dark meat on the outside because it can withstand the roasting comparatively better than the uh, breast meat can. Does that make sense, guys? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. End on. What? We already have to end. Yep. Oh man, it's not even fifty yet. Well, what time do we time have to it leave? Gets fifty. What time? What time do we have to leave? Jack. God. <laughs> so, five minutes. Five minutes? All right. I'm now gonna, four. I'm going to rip through them. Brett wrote in about MSG. Hey, Dave, Nastasia Jack, and everyone else who's there today, I have a question regarding MSG, but not the typical one worrying about bogus health concerns. Rather, I'm curious how to make the best use of it. Do you have any general tips or guidelines when it comes to cooking with MSG? Is MSG a universal augmenter of flavor? Are there particular types of foods and dishes where it really shines and others where it should be left off? How should I go about balancing it with the salt being used to season the dish? I look forward to your insight. Thanks. Love the show. Brett from Portland, Oregon. Okay. I typically, the thing with MSG is, is if you add too much MSG, it's the same kind of feeling you get as when you add too much like seaweed or dashi. Everything to me, and I've said this before on the show, starts taking on kind of a dashi kind of a note. I've used it in cocktails before, but really only in savory cocktails. And I found that it adds, it adds a savoriness to certain cocktails that you're like, ah, that's Nah, it's not good, right? But we did. I did a bitter melon cocktail that wanted a savory note, and the MSG was good in it. That's what we did. That thing that uh, somebody dubbed uh, Doritos bitters at the uh, Mofat event like a year ago. So, in things like cocktails, I mean, I think it has relatively limited application for things that are savory. In foods, I mean, you just have to be careful that you don't want it to become a prevalent flavor. If it becomes a prevalent flavor, then you're overdoing it. I tend not to use it in the kitchen except for when I'm making things like snack foods but uh, because they really, really need it. They need to get punched up by, by a little MSG. Uh, I mean naturally you probably could reduce the salt level a little when you add MSG, which is why everyone's rushing to add 
like like good label MSG uh, substitutes when they're making low salt things. But like I said, I once had an Alfredo that was low sodium Alfredo, and it had uh, other you know uh, MSG like things, not sodium versions of it, obviously, because they're trying to reduce the sodium. And to me, it tasted Asian. It tasted like dashi. So I just be careful of it that way. But uh, don't be afraid to use it. You know, I would add small amounts of it because you don't want it to become noticeable or overwhelming. Noticeable MSG, I think, is more offensive than noticeable salt. Right? What do you think, Stas? Yeah. Stas still thinks she's allergic to MSG. Are you over that now? I'm over it. Good. Thank God. Jacob Farkas writes in about Citron. My name is Jacob Farkas. I emailed you last year about a molecular gastronomy class I was teaching at the school I work for. You know how I feel about the term. That's fine. We're not going to get into it because I don't have time. I was hoping to have the students uh, visit Dave, but you mentioned that his lab was not a place for high school students. Definitely not. Right, Stas? Or anyone, really, at this point. (laughs) Uh, In any event, I have a question about infusing vodka with Citron using the uh, nitrogen cavitation method. Although, remember... It doesn't use nitrogen. It uses nitrous oxide and the shifting solubilities of nitrous oxide, which is really relatively soluble gas at relatively lower pressure. So I really prefer if people call it nitrous rather than uh, nitrogen cavitation, which is a different kind of lab technique for rupturing cells. Anyways, and I, you know, I had someone that kind of misunderstood the technique and was actually trying to measure cell rupture as a function of uh, effectiveness in infusion. I'm like, it's not, it's not the same. Anyway, nitrous. Uh, uh, I have a one liter whipping siphon. I would like to make a half uh, to one liter of infused vodka. Can I use the method and what ratio of citron to vodka and for how long should I let it infuse? Well, I haven't actually done that infusion uh, before, so I can't give you uh, specifics. But if you have a standard recipe that you like, in general, when you're doing rapid infusion, what, what's happening is is um, you are trying to pull less of the kind of bitter and detergenty notes out of the um, out of peel, specifically in citrus, uh, like less of those kind of notes out and so what you're going to do is add a lot more than you would normally and then use the rapid infusion to pull a lot of the top notes out so i would say that if you have a typical infusion it's going to last you know a week or two weeks uh in a bottle i would do 50 percent more of um 50 to 100 percent more of the citron and then i would do a rapid infusion with two or three chargers and I would do it for like four or five minutes, see how it is. And if it needs to go, if if it's not strong enough yet, then I would do another four to five minutes. Now, if it's too strong, then you're going to want to do like one minute, two minutes. A lot of my recipes are one or two minutes, especially on things that are extremely bitter, like uh, coffee or chocolate. But the, you know, the thing with, uh, with citrus is you want to ride that edge of where it takes on that ugly detergenty note. Now, bear in mind, I'm not a fan of such beverages as limoncello. And also bear in mind that Every commercially available citron-flavored vodka you have is flavored with essences and not with straight peels, right? Yeah. Yeah. So give it a shot. So what I would do is make a small batch remembering that you can't scale up and down. So, But you can, of course – Add more, so you could do a test batch with a small amount, and then add more to that batch and reheat it again without without stuff. But if you, you know what I typically will do is I'll I'll make a smaller test batch and then I'll scale it up once, and that'll get me close enough to what I'm doing that I can make a recipe that I can make again and again and again. Uh, Okay. Uh, Philippe Lament uh, wrote in, uh, book is finally coming out. So stoked. I have a sticky question for you. I'm trying to make an alcoholic ice cream for a Paco Jet. I want to retain the raw alcohol taste. I've been using cognac and Calvados. Do you have any suggestions on ratios or stabilizers I can use to have a nice consistency? All right. So you're going to have to make a fluid gel with something like a gel and to pump up the consistency of it because you're not going to get it frozen hard enough. Uh, typically for ice creams uh, that have a good, uh, that don't melt down very much when they're warm, i.e. you're going to have you know properties that you like. I like to do 
do a half a percent, one half of one percent, five grams into a liter of something like Kelkagel F, and that is going that'll stabilize it. Remember, don't heat it with your alcohol because you want the raw alcohol taste. Make a separate fluid gel and then mix your alcohol in. Hopefully, that's going to work for you. Uh, John Cherney. Uh, painted his has a searsol and he says it looks great because he painted his propane bottle gold because he hated uh, the green on the uh, searsol he dislikes the camping green color so he sent us his pimped out gold uh, searsol right Stas yeah. uh, and then uh, Ellie Nassar by the way who said thank you rhymes with NASCAR right wants to know about carbonating apfelvine so apfelvine is like the higher alcohol version of apple cider where you dope with sugar to get the alcohol content of it higher wants to know whether or not uh i've done it i haven't but what i would recommend inst- he, he was going to do priming sugar right and bottle condition it uh ellie what i would do is just get the liquid bread set up or use a soda stream carbonate a small amount of it on on your own right now don't any- and then taste it and see whether you like it if you do then you could try the sugar stuff to carbonate it or you could just force carbonate it and call it uh, call it a day um Ross, Ooh, that's going to do it. Ross, I'm going to read your story about Aruba next time because it goes also with King Inber, uh, King, uh, Ken's story about uh, about how there's not enough good information for safety on sous vide, which is an important thing. I can't rush through it, so we'll get it next time. Uh, along with Daniel's questions from San Jose about rose petals, and that was cooking issues. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.